live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA 1050 AM, 102.3 FM and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful downtown San Bernardino. Thank you for tuning into the Water Zone Show. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Starr. Uh, Mr. Mike Barron is out today as because this is our agriculture show week. We do have an in-house guest that uh, does usually our news, and she stopped by today at my office, and I thought she'd come down and have good fun. So this is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. we got a great show tonight, and we have our two wonderful people from our micro-irrigation group who will be taking over as hosts, Miss Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Go with you. Hi, Chris. <laughs> hey, hi, hi, Inge. Hey, Chris. Hello. We're looking forward to a great show tonight. We're having a theme about recycling and being more sustainable for our great state of California, both with plastics and water and energy, all three. So stay tuned. We've got a couple of great guests coming up. Excellent. Uh, just so our listeners know, they can call in at 909-888-5222. Or if you're calling outside the area code, it's 888-909-1050. That's toll free. And they can also watch us at kcaaradio.com or go to Ustream and do that. Just one quick announcement, and then I'll turn it over to you guys. Um, as part of the Irrigation Industries promotion of Smart Irrigation Month during July, uh, this show, The Water Zone, which is sponsored by the Toro Company, is conducting a contest for regional elementary schools located in Southern California to have a chance to win an outdoor living and educational garden for their students. And the Toro Company will create and install native and edible garden, and the children will have the opportunity to obtain skills to grow, maintain, preserve, and prepare healthy food. That'll be a, that'll be something. Uh, Toro will also provide educational material about soil science, irrigation, and solar technologies, and information that will help increase nutrition, knowledge, and understanding the value of living things. So listeners and viewers of The Water Zone, you're encouraged to nominate a local elementary school who will benefit from this contest. It's real simple. All you do is send it in your nomination to Toro Irrigation Marketing at Toro.com for a chance to win. That's Toro Irrigation Marketing at Toro.com. And I'm sorry for the long length of that, but I didn't create that that email. So got to do that. And the contest will begin officially on July 6th, and it'll end July 31st, and we'll pick a winning school will be announced on August 3rd broadcast. So um, hopefully any of you listeners who have a favorite elementary school or think a school can benefit from that, please uh, just send it into that, and uh, and hopefully we'll have a great winner, and uh, it'll be a great uh, effort. So anyway, I'll turn it over to Paul and Inge. It's all yours. Thanks, Rob. We'll forgive you since it wasn't your fault. So, uh, <laughs> uh, A-okay. So we've got a great guest tonight. His name is Jeremy Plagenza. Jeremy, are you there? I'm here, Andy. Awesome. Well, uh, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Let me introduce you to our uh, listening audience. Um, we're, we're pleased to be able to have Jeremy on hand tonight to talk for about the next 20 minutes about recycling plastics in uh, our great state of California. Jeremy has been in the plastics industry for over 17 years, and he has spent the last 10 running his own manufacturing and, and recycling business up in the Central Valley of California. He joined Revolution Plastics, which is a subsidiary of Delta Plastics, in early 2016 as the Director of Operations. So, Jeremy, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the ag plastic recycling industry. Well, thanks for having me on first, Amy and Paul. It's an honor to be on the water zone with you. Uh, it's a great question because most kids, when they're growing up, as you could imagine, 
Uh, don't dream about going into the recycling ag plastic industry, but it's a it's a phenomenal industry. You're kidding? Uh, yeah, yeah. Could you imagine? Uh, and early uh, around two thousand uh, two thousand five, I was running my own plastic manufacturing plant, and we started using agricultural plastic in our products that we were making. So. You know, growing up on a family dairy from Central California, I knew that there was a lot of ag plastic out there to be recycled, and, I, and it was a natural fit for us to use this recycled plastic in the product that we were making. Um, I quickly realized, though, there was way more plastic than I could ever recycle um, in our manufacturing process. I was having to turn farmers away almost from the get-go. I think it was at that point that I made the decision to jump into the plastics recycling industry. You chose plastics recycling rather than milking cows? I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm one of, a uh, fun fact here, I'm one of 13, Ingie, so I was the middle child, and, you, you know, uh, you can imagine how many of us uh, wanted to stay on the farm. Out of 13 of us, there is, uh, I got uh, six older brothers and uh, four younger uh, sisters and two younger brothers. None of us stayed on the dairy. When it was time to leave home, uh, we uh, kissed the dairy goodbye. Oh, that's too bad. But So, so they shipped you <laughs> off to other countries and other industries, such as ag plastic recycling. I understand now. Still stayed in, still, still, still loved ag, still stayed in ag, even with uh, the ag plastic recycling. It's a natural fit, and some of the uh, best customers that we have or that use our service are actually uh, uh, dairy, dairy uh, folks. So it's a, it's a great, uh, great industry. Well, yeah, you're able to help the dairies now um, rather than work for them. You're, um, or work for one, you're able to help them by recycling their plastics. Absolutely. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about uh, Revolution Plastics, Delta Plastics, how they got into the business, and, uh, you know, where do you operate as a company, and uh, what's tell us some other things that may be important or interesting to the listening audience about Delta and Revolution, please. Well, yeah, 16 months ago, Paul, I came on board with Revolution Plastics. Like you said, it's owned by Delta Plastics. Uh, they're the largest ag plastic recycler in the country. Uh, Revolution Plastics recognized that California is really the great frontier for ag plastics. As we sit in meetings and we talk about uh, where we're going to uh, put another operation, California uh, was first in line. Uh, it really is the great frontier for plastic uh, uh ag recycling. It's important because California Ag has a domestic company now with over 20 years of plastic recycling experience working to take care of this problem, and it is a problem. Revolution is a, is a privately held company. It's part of Delta Plastics, and Delta Plastics is a leading manufacturer of polytubing in the Mississippi Delta. They're located in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our uh, founder and chairman, uh, Dean Thompson, and the Thompson family started the recycling program because they were concerned about the polytube that they were manufacturing ending up in the landfill or sitting out in big piles um, out on the uh, farm. So he started uh, with a cement mixer, believe it or not, a cement mixer and a water hose. 
Uh, that's how he washed his first pound of plastic, and we have recycled over one billion pounds. That's a that's a uh, with a B billion pounds. When Revolution Plastics started collecting here in California 16 months ago, we had one location. It was in uh, central the central San Joaquin Valley. We had five employees. We were collecting 400,000 pounds a month, which is which is sizable. It, it makes a uh, dent, but. Since then, we've added two additional locations, one in the southern San Joaquin Valley and one on the central coast. We employ now over 30 people. Revolution Plastics uh, is collecting about 3 million pounds. We're just uh, coming in on that 3 million pounds a month. It's important to the listening audience because Revolution Plastics is diverting millions of pounds of ag plastic from our landfills and employing California workers. It's important. Just a quick uh, follow-up. You mentioned that Delta, one of the primary products that Delta Plastics makes is the tube. Uh, Explain what the tube is and and what it does and how it's used in the Delta. Yeah, so... so in the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, there's where they don't have the water issues that we have here in California. So there's a lot of flood irrigating. Uh, rice is flood irrigated, and so it's a lay flat. It's uh, eight inch to 22 inch, and basically just uh, uh, tubing to move water around the uh, field and irrigate. So Jeremy, what on earth are you doing with the billion pounds of plastic that you collect from farms in the Delta? and the 3 million pounds of plastic that you're collecting now in California, now that you have expanded service over the last 16 months. What do you do with all that? Yeah, well, what makes us so unique, Ingi, is that we keep all of this ag plastic we collect right here in the United States. We use all that ag plastic we collect in our EcoLogo certified can liners, uh, trash bags. We make uh, polytubing, like I was saying. We make construction and ag film. Also, we use ag plastic for Revolution Board. It's a landscaping product that is used in the landscaping industry. Uh, ag plastic recycled material is ideal for these applications because it's a high performance value and the demands that it's under because of the extreme conditions that ag plastics are used under. Um, in the past, this ag film, Ingi, has been landfilled. It's been buried on the farm or even burned. So this ag film is uh, even sent as far away as Asia, China, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam. Uh, So these are really not sustainable solutions. So you're taking this this plastic and you're using it. In the past, uh, you said we ship it all offshore. But I think there's still companies uh, in the country that still uh, will package it up or bale it this material and ship it to the countries that you mentioned. But everything that uh, Revolution has is the states here in the U.S. and creates uh, jobs uh, in the U.S. also uh, diminishes the landfill uh, burden uh, for uh, for all that plastic that's just going to sit there for years and years and years, correct? Yeah, that's correct. We use all of this plastic here in the United States. Well, that creates jobs, and as you say, it prevents us from shipping things overseas, which 
I think has a variable market, right? I mean, resins go up and down. Recycled resins or PCR or post-consumer resins, they have variable rates. And, you know, the reputation has been that recyclers come and go and they're not consistent. And maybe elaborate on that a little bit on how, how Delta and Revolution Plastics is different and overcomes that deficiency in the recycling business. Well, yeah, that's, that's a great question, Ingi. Um, maybe one of the things that we need to clarify is the word recyclers, because most of these companies picking up ag plastic really are just waste haulers. They don't recycle anything. They, they are more um, opportunistic, and God bless them, but they're opportunistic businessmen or women who, when plastic prices are up, they'll collect plastic. Uh, but when prices are down, they they will leave the market um, after making many promises to the farmer. It's one of our greatest challenges is we talk to farmers. They, they've just seen this over and over where someone promises that they'll pick that plastic up. They'll be there year after year. They'll be a, de- a dependable solution. And then they pull out of the uh, market when prices come down. And the farmers are left with this big problem again. It, you know, one of the things that really makes Revolution Plastics so different is our circular business model. You know, we collect the plastic, we recycle the plastic, and then manufacture an end-use product for this recycled plastic. So, Jeremy, if you could elaborate a little bit on, you said the, the pick up the plastic, the, the new app that uh, Revolution has developed, I think our listeners would be interested to know about uh, the new uh, the new application uh, that uh, that farmers can use, along with the, the, the unique trucks that actually do the, the picking up. So could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, sorry, Paul. I, uh, I uh, Absolutely. That's uh, probably the most important part of, of what, how we are separated from other recyclers. Typically in the past, these recyclers have dropped the debris bin. The farmer is left to fill it up. They call several times. Why we're so different is we have created an app. You can go to the app store and you can find it under Ag Plastic Pickup. Um, you fill out your farm information and it'll prompt you uh, through to where you actually can take a picture using your smartphone, take a picture of the pile of plastic that is sitting there um, out in the field. A lot of these places don't have addresses. As you know, it's remote places. But when you take a picture of that plastic, it'll drop uh, a longitude and latitude latitude uh, pin right on that plastic. And you hit request. It requests a pickup from us, and we end up sending uh, trucks. You usually get an email notification within 24 hours saying whether or not your your uh, material has been qualified. You know, once that truck gets out there, another great benefit to the farmer is when we send out these grapple trucks, they have a, uh, they have a claw on them. So picture maybe picking up a, a tennis ball with your hand. Well, this claw has the ability to pick up over 2,000 pounds. So we can self-load all this material ourselves. In times past, the farmers had to load this material themselves, costing them labor, costing him money, and most importantly, it costs him time. Um, but again, you know, that, that really is what sets us apart in our, in our, and that's, you know, I think one of the things that 
also sets us apart. Um, it can't be undervalued. If you call, we pick up. Um, a lot of people, when they call, they're surprised that we're so prompt to pick up and, and address any concerns or issues that they have, and we're able to work through those. And people have just been tremendously satisfied with this uh, service. Yeah, I read one grower's uh, testimonial about your service that basically said they 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 called you and you said you'd come tomorrow and you came tomorrow and you did a good job and left it clean, which was really important to them and and they're going to call you next time. So <laughs> that's that's a pretty good testimonial. Yeah, ab- absolutely. We love those uh, testimonials. We have uh, we have uh, uh, farmers that are calling us, and after we're done, they just uh, how professional the drivers are, and how uh, clean the trucks are. Being in uh, agricycling, we take care of the equipment. It looks sharp. It's professional, uh, and there's no uh, there's no uh, issues or problems. And if there ever is. Maybe a truck gets stuck once in a while out in the wintertime, uh, always quick to take care of those things. But for the most part, we, we have not had any uh, any issues, and I would uh, venture to say that most testimonials would probably be like you just read, Andy. Yeah. Well, um, I, I've, also, I've also heard you, uh, and Paul has a follow-up for you. Well, yeah, just was curious. I, I was thinking... Ag plastic, we think of a field, uh, that plastic has got to be pretty dirty, uh, you know, with soil and, and debris on it. It's not like a, a lot of our listeners that have a curbside recycling bin where they will put bottles and cans that are relatively clean. There's no dirt. Uh, perhaps you can uh, share with us, Jeremy, a little bit of uh, the differences between the two and how you're so successful in the cleaning process, getting the plastic ready to bake into uh, your uh, eco trash bags. Yeah, and and really the uh, one of the major things, and we really try to educate the farmer on this because the farmer has uh, some responsibility here as he's rolling the plastic, whether it's drip tape or drip tube or hoop house film. He, we we ask him to. Clean the plastic as, as good as he can, not not uh, rolling it around in the dirt um, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, Paul, because it really sets us apart from any of the competitors in this industry is our of our wash process. It's all about throughput. If you're not getting the throughput when you're washing and cleaning this plastic, uh, you're not going to be profitable and it's not going to be a sustainable business. And we, you know, Delta Plastics has been around for over 20 years, our sister company, Delta Plastics, and we bring all of that know-how uh, to the, to the uh, California recycling industry. Well, it sounds like we really needed it because you're you're coming in just 16 months ago and you're you're buried with orders. Um, how much plastic is there in California, and what is the um, what, what's the opportunity for you here? Well, the opportunity, Ingi, is immense. You simply put, there's no place in the United States that uses as much ag plastic as California. California, I don't know if the listeners uh, realize this, but California ranks number one for food production. Where food is being grown, plastic is being used. Uh, The days of burying or landfilling or shipping this plastic overseas, it's not a sustainable solution. One of the reasons why 
I get excited about talking about uh, plastic, uh, uh, recycling plastic, uh, ag plastic recycling, is because the sheer volume in the state. When we, uh, I think I had said that when we were, when we sit around and we talk about California, California, uh, just the sheer volume that's here in California is a great opportunity for us. We're excited about that opportunity. But we estimate over 150 million pounds of plastic is put down every year in California. So you're from a from a future standpoint, Jeremy. You you think that the as long as we have water and labor and all the inputs uh, to keep growing food uh, and of course land, uh, that the future for uh, agriculture and as a result the future for uh, plastic recycling is pretty good, would, would you say? Yes, absolutely. We don't see that, uh, you know, California uh, food production isn't slowing down. I know this last drought was, uh, it was hard on the farmers, but as we've got rain and, and we're excited about, uh, excited about the future of plastic being used. And plastic really, and you know this, Ingie and, and Paul, Plastic really helps to lower um, water consumption uh, or water use in the in the uh, in the irrigating process. We no longer in California flood irrigate a lot of this, or, or very rarely flood irrigate. Uh, plastic is important to save that important uh, resource uh, water. So uh, as long as as long as we have. Uh, water and and then farming will take place here in California. There's no other place in California that uh, produces as much food, whether it's uh, grapes or almonds or uh, silage corn uh, for the dairy. There's just uh, endless amounts of food grown here. And so, no, we don't see that stopping anytime soon. We only see the uh, growth of ag plastic in the, in the industry in California. Well, Jeremy, thank you for helping our industry. We're in the drip irrigation business, of course, uh, at Toro Ag. And as you said, our drip irrigation equipment, our plastic drip irrigation equipment, helps consume less water and resources and increase productivity of the land and per unit of water for the farmers. And you've helped us close that loop of what to do with the plastic when it's spent and becomes plastic that needs to be recycled. So, hey, if any of our listeners have uh, have uh, farmers as friends, have them download the app, Ag Plastic Pickup. It's like ride-sharing for plastic. And contact the Revolution Plastics folks um, in California. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining us tonight, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, Ingie. Thank you, Paul. Well, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone show today. And uh, I learned a lot about recycled farming plastics, which I never knew there was a whole bunch of. I knew about our drip irrigation plastic stuff, but I didn't realize everything else is there. So for me, it's very interesting. I'm going to turn it over to our wonderful host of our ag, Ms. Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. Thanks, Rob. Uh, we have a, a very uh, uh, another very fascinating guest, uh, Bruce Marlowe. Bruce, are you with us? Yes, I'm online. Excellent. Thank you. Um, let me uh, introduce Bruce, and uh, he's got a very interesting uh, background and has a very interesting to- solution to uh, 
to wastewater and tailwater in the uh, in the ag sector, but also could be used in uh, various applications. Bruce has been a leader in the development of innovative energy solutions since 1972. During his career, he supported the nuclear power industry, driving technology forward and leading large integrated projects. In 2006, while working as a vice president for the French energy technology company Arriva, Bruce was introduced to the environmental and clean water challenges in the California Central Valley, or the San Joaquin Valley. His concern for these challenges led Bruce to the Pinochi Water District, which, uh, as some of our listeners may remember, we've had uh, on as a guest. The Pinochi District, of course, is the, right in the epicenter of the uh, sustainable management of agricultural drainage water. Bruce's efforts ultimately have led to his involvement in the creation of Water FX, a solar desalination company that has demonstrated its capabilities as a clean water solution driven by renewable energy. Bruce is a board member and active leader in the growth of Water FX, Hydro Revolution, and the Aqua 4 technology. Welcome, Bruce. Well, thank you. Tell us a little bit, if you would, please, about your background. And uh, it's very interesting, very diverse. Uh, how you ended up in the ag, irrigation, and water industry in the San Joaquin Valley of California? Well, it is a bit interesting. I. Um... <clears throat> So back, oh, about a decade ago, there was a, you know, revolution or a resurgence in the nuclear power industry, and uh, many companies jumped back in the game, building, designing, and qualifying new new design reactors, and and the company Areva was leading the forefront of that of a 1,600 megawatt uh, nuclear power plant that they were working to deploy around the world. And as part of that effort in the United States, um, there was, we were looking at the state of California, and there was a, a, a group of, of, we'll say, farmers and businessmen in the Fresno area that were interested in building a nuclear plant in the Fresno area and uh, using the energy to clean water. And so that became my introduction to water, where in the past I've been dealing on the power side and, and helping to run and operate these power plants. Uh, you know, this was a, a, an approach which was very interesting. And as that, as I learned more about what water are we cleaning, I learned more about the agricultural drainage water challenges and the problems with just water and the challenges with water in the state of California, for which I wasn't very familiar with at the time. And so um, that actually drove me over to have quite a passion for trying to solve some of the water challenges in the Central Valley of California and optimize the use of uh, clean energy to do it. So, uh, Bruce, this is Angie. Um, that's fascinating that the, a group of farmers actually wanted to build a nuclear power plant in order to clean water in the Central Valley. T- tell us a little bit about how water effects came into play in, in, with the founders um, and what exactly you, you do. You didn't actually build a nuclear power plant, did you? You did something else, right? <laughs> well... No, nuclear power plants are quite difficult to build and um, very expensive. Yeah, no, we haven't. No, no, that 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 got the one, two, three punch from um, you know inexpensive natural gas, uh, the economy taking a bit of a tank, and then of course you add Fukushima issues to it, and that was you know pretty much put you know flattened out the opportunity to to do anything with nuclear power in the state of California in terms of building new nuclear plants. 
However, the idea was to use clean energy to make clean water. That's the foundation of the idea, and meaning clean energy, meaning carbon, low-carbon energy, because nuclear power plants don't produce carbon uh, when they're running. So the idea was to use that energy to provide clean power for the Central Valley of California and, and water. But Arriva wasn't just a nuclear power company. They had made an investment in a company called Osra, which is a solar company of Australia, which was a thermal solar technology company. And um, so, you know, as we were driving to the to create an integrated design, the, the program was we'll be build a clean energy park. And the first thing we would do is use thermal solar energy to. Uh, the clean water, then and then we build the nuclear power plant to, to come into the park later on. And Ariva at the time, the company I was working for, um, had a thermal solar energy division in 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 the, in the South Bay. So that was going to become the, the technology to to drive the first round of cleaning the water. And then it was like, okay, so what what water are we cleaning? Well, we're going to clean agricultural drainage water. Well, what's that? So that led to Pinoche, who's, like we were talking about earlier, is ground zero for, you know, the challenges of agricultural drainage water. You know, the whole west side of the valley is quite challenged. Actually, the whole state of California is challenged with that. And so um, the the company WaterFX was formed with the idea of using the Ariva technology. That actually didn't happen because Ariva was having some financial challenges. So another technology was used. Yet the company was still born to use thermal solar energy and multi-effect distillation to create a pilot project to prove that it could sustainably clean that very difficult agricultural drainage water. So now that you built that uh, uh, facility, it's in, uh, in and it's operational in the Pinochi Water District. How long has it been up and running, and what are the successes you've seen, Bruce? Well, well, it currently does not run. It was actually built as a pilot project. You think of it as a big, you know, maybe a Ph.D. type of engineering project. It was designed uh, to prove that the technology would work and prove the economics. It wasn't really designed to, with the idea that if it worked, that we would build a, a larger uh, plant, about a $30 million plant right next to that plant, uh, with you know, per, in a, you know, a real production unit uh, that would clean 2,500 acre feet uh, per year, and uh, would put the water, the clean water, into the system, and we would take that to a zero liquid discharge, and then we would remove the salts and take it, take the salts out of the valley. Because what we learned as part of this process is there's about 200 million tons of salt on the valley. And, uh, and we put about 20 million tons of salt on it every year. There's a lot of very salty wells. Uh, salts can be boron, sodium chloride, sodium silver. There's lots of different kinds of salt, not your typical table salt. Uh, nitrates, there's all sorts of things on boron. So the goal was to take the water to a zero liquid discharge, take the salts and recycle them into industry, and put the water back into the water system so they could be used for farming. So basically recycling the water and using the and taking the byproduct and recycling it into industry, including potentially building uh, products like tile and bricks and things that you could actually build a structure with, build roads and walls and ceilings, things you could actually build a community with from the byproduct. So use clean energy to make clean water, use the water for food and hydration, and use the byproduct to build products that you could use uh, to build your community. 
that almost sounds uh, too good to be true. Um, so instead of nuclear power, you were able to use solar power to clean up this tailwater, and then with all these uh, uh, usable byproducts, and then uh, using the water for ag. What what was happening to this water before you came along? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, the, the area at the Pinoche, which is actually the Pinoche Drainage District, um, they have a 6,000-acre sump where all the water um, goes to this large area that that they grow Jose tall wheatgrass, which is a salt-tolerant grass that they were you know, taking some of the water coming through there and basically growing uh, some food for cattle, which is Jose tall wheatgrass, and it, and it uses salty water. And really, um, there's a rule that says that at some point they can no longer take any of that water and dump it into the San Joaquin River, uh, which is coming up real soon, uh, that there's no longer allowed to do that, because right now, whatever flows over out of that large reuse sub-area goes into the San Joaquin River. So the idea is to be able to take and start cleaning the water, reusing it, and take the salt away as a final solution to the, the abundance of salty water that's happening out there in the Central Valley. And I'm sure the water isn't as salty as seawater, um, which is like, what, 35,000 parts per million? What's this brackish water, 2,000 or so? Or how, how salty is it? Well, uh, what day is it and how much rain happened? Dilution, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, there's naturally occurring salts coming out of the mountains to the west uh, across the valley. Uh, those mountains are full of salt and boron. All the wells out there are pretty salty, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 TDS. This reuse area water can be as high or higher than seawater, depending on, you know, what its condition is, because it's being concentrated. You know, there's 100,000 acre feet of land out there that's tiled, so French drains or tiling. It feeds all that water to that 6,000-acre uh, reuse area, and, it's, and it continues to become concentrated as more salt water arrives there, but the salt water doesn't leave. Not so, unlike the salt and sea, I would imagine. Yeah, it's just becoming more salty. Um, it's, a ma- it's a massive problem across the planet. We, we receive requests from people all over the world try- struggling with um, you know, salt intrusion into the groundwater. And and, it, and it's a continuing problem, and, and, and you just don't grow food with that kind of water. So everybody's looking for a solution. So some of the solutions are, well, we'll just desalt the water, and then we'll just start piling the salt over on this land, and then we, then, then, then we take the land out of service. In California, if, if, if we don't do something other than what we're currently doing, 100 years from now, you won't be, you won't be farming in the state of California. It'll all be covered in so much salt and the wells and the water be so salty that we know you'll fa- you'll follow the state at the rate we're dumping salt on the land. Bruce, uh, so, you know, we had a, a real wet winter uh, last winter, which was preceded by five years uh, of drought. How do you, how does that dynamic change the tailwater situation? And is it, is it a bigger problem or a lesser problem? How would you uh, how would you describe that? Well, uh, another interesting question. So more water, states flush with water, so everybody's happy, right? Well, we can only we can only have as much water as we can hold. Everything else actually makes its way to the ocean. But what happens now is you have more water uh, that's salty because now you're mixing all that nice fresh 
water that's leached itself into the upper level aquifer and the surface water systems and now which are salty so now you have more salty water to clean but maybe at a lower TDS got it right so there's actually more of it to clean so, so Bruce can we can we recharge our groundwater with this um, desalted water or desalinated water or distilled water whatever the correct term is um, that you're creating can can your process then create water to put back in our aquifer, which is what we're trying to do these days, is rebuild our, our savings account, our bank account of water in, in the groundwater? Well, you can put it into certain aquifers. Obviously, when they're subsidence, those aquifers are, you know, are kind of flattened out, and you can't recharge those. So there are aquifers that are rechargeable, some that are not rechargeable. Uh, so, yes, you can, you can put them into um, underground water banks. I mean, you know, Kern County has a lot of uh, water banks, you know, semi-tropic, and others are storing water. So you, wherever you want to store the water, you could store it. What's interesting is there's, there's give or take between a half a million and a million acre feet per year of agricultural drainage water that's salty that could be recycled, the salt taken away, and the water put back into the system wherever you like it. You could bank it. You can put it in a river, send it someplace, put it in a reservoir, trade it with somebody else. There's whatever you want to do with it. It's water that you could make available uh, to the system, and you could you could be continue to recycle it over and over. And what are you doing with the water that you're currently creating? Well, we're not actually running the plant because it was a pilot plant, but the plan the plan was um, to put the water into the. It was going to go into the Delta Mendota Canal, so it was going to go into the system. And and then the salts are going to be taken away and recycled in the industry. That that was what the the next level or the commercial size plant that we were going to build was was going to happen. That's that's what our next plan step was. Uh huh. And now the plan is to do what? Well, the plan is to do well. The plan is to take that next step, but the, it's difficult to do um, when there's really no high level of interest. And doing it because it costs money. Everybody wants water, water falls out of the sky, and everybody wants water for free. It's a God-given right, so why would we pay money for it? But yeah, well, what's interesting enough going on is we now need to process water. We need to spend more money to do that, and we need to blend that water with the existing, well, we'll say, less expensive water, which is the things that follow the sky and run through the canals, the lands in the reservoirs, though not, not free because we have to maintain that infrastructure and build more infrastructure there's a lot of water that can be cleaned and put in that system, but it costs money. You're running a you're running a water processing plant, so you know that that water is going to be more expensive, two or three times more expensive. Let's say maybe up to fifteen hundred dollars an acre foot, as opposed to maybe five hundred dollars an acre foot, or in some cases where people in the valley are paying twenty dollars an acre foot for water because they have some rights to water that gives them a great deal. You know, because water in California is is um, is unstructured. You can have a farmer on one side of the road pay $1,000 an acre foot for water and the farmer on the other side of the road pay 20 That'd be the same as going to a gas station intersection. One gas station is 50 cents a gallon, the other one's $500 a gallon. Um, so there's no structure. There's no water structure, trading structure, and, 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 and it's a kind of a loosely held program. So you have a lot of water uh, that's got various prices. So only the people paying the high, highest prices would be interested in investing in something like this. And, and frankly, the, um, the technology people in the state of California that do tech, meaning, you know, apps, the Googles and the Yahoos and the 
Microsoft and uh, of the of 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 the area, they, they don't have a high level of interest in water. They have a high level of interest in something that goes on your phone. So there's not a lot of investment, and everybody wants high levels of return. So uh, a little frustrating to to build one of these projects because they don't give the returns that maybe you know uh, Google or Yahoo are looking for or an Apple. Um, so there's not a level high level of interest. Infrastructure projects are not of interest to the tech people and the people with the money and the VC guys are looking for high-level guaranteed returns, and everybody wants to figure out how they're going to get in the game and make lots of money, uh, they're not really that concerned about what's going on with water. It's just another commodity that they try to make money on, right? So it's, a, it's not a sexy program available out there that you, know, you can get your name on the front of Time magazine with. But I think, I think uh, you made an excellent point earlier, Bruce, when you said the amount of tailwater that uh, is out there in the state the, you know, the millions and millions of acre feet of water, I, I think we need to point out to our listeners that one acre foot of water is enough for two households for a full year. So this is a significant amount of water that we all need to, to grow our food and to drink, uh, let alone uh, all the other things we do with it uh, uh, personally and, and through, uh, through our economy as a state. Yeah, the, what, there's not a single thing in my opinion, more important on this planet than clean water. Hydrates your body, it grows your food. Pretty much, we've lived a million years on this planet without cell phones and electricity and applications and computers, but we've never lived a day on this planet without clean water. And there's a billion and a half people on this planet that are dehydrated and drinking terrible water and dying every day, uh, these people, 10 to, 10 to 20,000 people a day on this planet for lack of clean water. And, and food. So it's the most important thing on the planet. It's, and I'm, you know, I'm completely addicted to helping solve the issues of bringing sustainable, clean water, using clean energy anywhere we can on the planet. A picture building a power plant, water plant, because there are integrated. Water is energy. Energy is water that you could put in the middle of someplace. You could turn the dial to the left and make clean energy during the day when you need the power. Turn the knob to the right at nighttime, make clean water at nighttime. Take the byproduct and build the roads and the walls and the floors and the ceilings to the community. And this can be done. And there's a lot of ways to do it. I'm, we're technology agnostic. It's about just going out there and actually doing it. But somebody has to decide that it's important and it's worth the investment to do. Well, I, I would also add not only are we as people dependent on water for eating and for drinking and so forth, but the, the environment upon which we depend has to have water in order to be sustained. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. It is the number one um, issue, and it only becomes important, it seems, when water doesn't fall out of the sky, which is very unfortunate. But uh, I think there is more awareness since this last drought. It was pretty severe and prolonged, and, and I think people are getting the message, and hopefully we'll wake up to the fact that, you know, water is a very local issue, and, you know, life doesn't happen without water. You can live without all those other things you mentioned, but you absolutely cannot live without water. So I hope it gets higher priority and that we can get some investment into what sounds like fantastic projects like yours. Well, you know, I, what I'm learning, and it's, you know, I've been spending about a decade now on water since about 2006, and become very addicted to solving the issues. And I've met a lot of people, and I've, from politicians to investors to technology people. And what, what I'm learning is that 
uh, there isn't quite enough pain yet in the water space for people to actually truly appreciate it. It's, it's very amazing. Uh, so when I say to somebody, well, what happens if you, you, you turn on the tap and no water comes out or, or black water comes out? What are you going to do? They said, well, we're going to call our local politician and tell them they need to fix that because they're obligated to make sure I have cheap water at my house. So, yeah, I mean, but- with an attitude like that and not understanding that water actually grows food and if you want quality food, you need to have quality water, um, there's, a lot, there's really a real la- big lack of education, lack of importance. Uh, to the to the general public uh, about the importance of water, and the investors don't want to invest in it because it doesn't give high enough returns, and it's a too long of a return. So even the philanthropist uh, would prefer not to invest in that space. So there's, I think there needs to be more education. Certainly, you guys are doing a great job at getting out there and talking to the world about how it all really works. And it, at the same time, you know, people need to probably, I guess, have a little bit more pain so they can actually really understand it. Because nobody's going to flock to it as an investment until it gives high returns or the, the, the world's in dire straits and it sounds like the place we need to play in. I mean, to give you an example, you know, we'll ask, how many, how many bottles of water do we actually drink in America annually out of bottle? Do you have any idea? No. Oh, yeah, billion. <laughs> Over 50 billion of any size. Oh, crazy. Right? And what do you think of the average price per gallon for that water as we pay? Now, remember, you buy these bottles at the ballpark for a dollar, you know, at the local street fairs for a dollar. You get them cheaper at the grocery store and you buy 36 of them or you fill it up in a local, your big container up. But what's wait, the, wait, wait, wait. I figured that out once and it's outrageous. It's like $50 a gallon. I, I paid. Um, it, it was an odd situation. I had to buy a bottle of water at a convenience store on a recent trip, and it was like three dollars and fifty cents for, you know, a, a pint of water. It's like, my God, that's probably fifty dollars a gallon. You know, well, you well the out. average price we pay for all water throughout America, drinking water, is ten dollars a gallon. And, you know, it's more than twice what gasoline is. Yeah. And you've got Nestle and Coca-Cola and these big water companies out buying water rights everywhere, bottling it up and and doing quite well, uh, but nobody's paying attention to what they're up to and what they're doing. It's a very fascinating thing, and for me, it rings as an important thing to to be in it, to, to be in my, to invest my time in and and to work on and and to be diligent about it. Because truly, at the end of the day, it's the survival of the planet comes from the fact that we actually have water for hydration and water for food. Well, and I and I think you brought up a good point, Bruce. The California is is number one in terms of food production in the country. We produce over half of all the fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, and, and citrus consumed as a nation right here in California. So, I mean, even though we're struggling here, for example, with water issues, it affects everybody in the country and all those we export uh, uh, products to as well. Right. Well, when you export products, you're exporting your water. <laughs> You know, yeah. one almond's like a gallon of water. So every almond you send out of the country, the state of California just sent out a gallon of water. So, well, I mean... <laughs> we had a guest on uh, Pat Mulroy from Nevada who also pointed out that when we import electronic gear from overseas, that also, like, it takes 80 gallons of water to create the chip in your iPhone. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah it's amazing. Well, so, and it's also what you eat. As an example, uh, and I want to do the guess again with you, a hamburger is 680 gallons of water. That's the bun, the meat, you know, the food yep. for the cow. And then, and then a pair of jeans is around 2,000 
gallon of water. Right. My, my jeans are about 3,000 gallons, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now if your jeans were designer jeans, they'd be 6,000 gallons. <laughs> no, no, they're not. <laughs> no, you're right. We, we as a... Um, you know, as a as a world of people, have to have a better appreciation for the value of water because you only really appreciate it when you don't have it, and that's too late. Yeah, pretty, 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 pretty much about. true. Yep. So, what do you see happening over the next five, ten, fifteen years here in the West in the last two or three minutes that we have to visit with you? Well, um, I, I do see a movement. Um, I do see advancing technologies, um, people working towards integrated or in- interesting uh, membrane solutions. The UCLA guys working with the Torre company are doing a lot of work in that space. And then there's MIT guys trying to find out better ways to bring the economics, get the economics more in line so that we can uh, clean water. I see, um, I see more desalination going on, not just in the ocean, but inland and in inland desalination, because this is the big this is the big challenge for desalination is what do you do with the byproduct water? Or if you turn it into a powder, what do you do with it? In the typical ocean desalination, you you ship it back out the ocean and you disperse it. There's a little bit of an environmental issue with that. Well, what do you do inland? Are you gonna stuff it in the ground? Are you gonna pour it onto a pond? So I see that's why I'm a big, big driver for taking the salts. We've done some work up at the Colorado School of Mines to make like a tile and make soaps and all kinds of things out of salts where where you actually blend it with a polymer and you make a product out of it so that you can use it to build community. So that way, the, the byproduct, like an aluminum can or a plastic bottle, actually gets used. So I see an industry developing, kind of like the deck industry went from wood to this product called Trex and other, you know, simulated kind of materials of synthetic materials build decks with and ultimately other things with. So I see the same thing happening with salt that you use from desalination and we actually bring it into the industry like aluminum cans and plastic bottles and we use it, we recycle it and we, we build community with it. So that's a big challenge coming up, but a huge industry to be developed as part of the desalination grows. More efforts gonna have to be put into that also as we as we as we try to drive this into some sustainable uh, program. Chris, I just want to say thank you on behalf of Ingy and I for, for uh, carving out some time. I know you're uh, busy and out of state. You took the time to call in and participate in the Water Zone. Thank you for your passion in this uh, industry, this space. Uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, getting to uh, hear what you're up to and what Water FX is up to. And if, uh, if you can ever... Uh, need a uh, platform to come in and speak uh, and tell about uh, tell anybody about uh, what you're doing and how you're doing it uh, please uh, give us a call we'll be happy to put you back on the water zone hey happy to participate happy to make a difference excellent thank you very much all right you all have a great evening rob back to you well i sure learned a lot today You know, when when you're not involved with things like that, you have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. And I was just 
quite amazed. Um, you know, we, I won't get political, but, you know, we spend money on government to do lots of different things. And I always say take the top three to five issues and solve those issues first before you take on and create 800 new laws a year, at least here in California. But uh, I'll tell you, they, you know, both gentlemen had a good story and, uh, you know, things 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 are going right. And then we got to figure out what to do because without water, it's not going to matter. We won't have a life. We won't have a world. So anyway, uh, thanks, guys. You did a great job.